This week on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, Direct-to-Consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust. Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy, and we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Panther Puri, the podcast where we're supposed to talk Panthers hockey, but sometimes we don't. Here are your hosts, Alex Lopez, Jake Langsam, and TJ Peterson. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Panther Puri. It's just me riding solo, kind of, for this episode. Alex and Jake uh, are too busy, you know, with the holidays coming up and a lot of other stuff going on. But I do have the great pleasure of being joined for this very special episode by Jack Han, former AHL assistant coach for the Toronto Marlies. Also, you were working in player development for the Marlies and the Maple Leafs organization. Currently, you're a consultant coach working with NHL prospects and pro women's players. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Nice to be here, TJ. Well, it's great to have you and you've covered this already. And when I saw it, it was because I think that right now in the kind of public domain hockey punditry, there's just not enough coverage of the tactics. And that's something that you make your bread and butter. So you, you came out with the uh, tactical breakdown of the Panther systems and what makes them unique. And I think it was May you know, kind of as they were uh, working their way into the playoffs with the new players after the uh, trade deadline. Uh, And I wanted to just talk about that to get started. To put it simply, what are the tactical strategies that allowed Florida to bolt from the blue and turn into this true contender that they are right now? So what really caught my attention about Florida last year was was not so much to team level initially, but how individual players uh, land with this team and suddenly start thriving. So whether we're talking about uh, Forsling, Montour, or uh, Sam Bennett later on the season, but also, you know, Carter Verhage and, um, you know, Anthony Duclair and those guys, like, it seems like all, like they were making all the right moves in terms of finding these kind of fringe players or or players who seem like they were going to be fringe players and then making them part of the, like the everyday rotation, having them in some cases play, you know, the best hockey they've ever played at the NHL level. So I, that was really um, what drove me to, to research the, the Panthers a little bit. And what I found was they kind of played like, the Eastern conference equivalent of the Colorado avalanche, which is they had four or sometimes even five players up to play very aggressive going up by attacking off the rush. Um, defensively, they did a really good job of angling the puck. Um, you know, like guys like Mackenzie Weger or Forsling or Montour or Nudevar, like they're not the biggest, strongest defenders in zone, but they did a really good job of, using their skating to kill rushes and force turnovers and just take away time and space. Um, 
And then on offense, you had guys like Carter Verhage or, you know, Huberto and Barkov, we know really well. But all of those guys, like, it just seemed like without adding any game breakers, they were able to really raise their game and make everything into a coherent whole, which as a coach and as a guy who's interested in tactics, I find that fascinating. Yeah, when I was reading through some of the tactical stuff, what I was thinking about with these players that they acquired that you talked about is how they utilize them in a way that maybe some of those superstars would have been utilized. And you can tell me because I am just a fan, if I'm getting this totally wrong, but a guy like a Anthony Duclair or a Carter Verhage, the two guys that were playing with Barkov for the majority of that season were often used as the F one. Whereas I can't remember because it is longer ago, but when it was, you know, for example, Huberto, Barkov and Dadanov when they were stacking the top line back in the 1819 uh, season and before that as well, uh, those guys would be counted upon to kind of do everything. The Huberdos and the Barkovs would be the F1s. They would be the ones leading the rush. They would be the ones, you know, first into the zone for the forecheck and such. And now it seems like they have other guys that can take that burden off of the star players. Is that like a, a totally misconceived notion? Well, like w- what I see with this team from last year is just they did such a good job of bolstering kind of the middle of the lineup mm-hmm. that there really wasn't a clear distinction between, you know, the top line and then the second and third line, at least maybe even the fourth line at times, but they're able to come at you in waves. And because of how quickly they played and how fast they skated and how well they moved the puck, there's this cumulative pressure. Because what, well, what happened with some teams is, let's say, a very top-heavy team, which I guess Florida used to be, um, once you survive the first line, then you can sort of sit back and get ready for uh, a good three or four minutes of just like pucks being punted down the ice or pucks being surrendered uh, as soon as you put a little bit of pressure. Whereas now, like, every line is looking to make plays, which has its pros and cons. Like, the pro, obviously, is the team's able to play a much quicker pace of game offensively. It's uh, whether it's the first or the third or the fourth line, they're able to gain the lateral control and make plays. The downside of, of it, of course, is, you know, by definition, your bottom six players are not going to be as good. So what you saw in the playoffs against Tampa was a lot of times the lesser players got exposed because, you know, they could try to make the same play. And uh, let me tell you, a bottom six NHL player is a very, very good hockey player. But certainly the difference between a bottom six player and a top six player is the top six player is simply going to be more consistent when executing these more difficult plays. So you're going to have more mistakes. So, um, and and I think that's the main reason why more teams don't play that way. It's just because, uh, let's say the best example is Boston. Uh, When when the the Marchand, uh, Bergeron, and Pasternak line is not on the ice, they're happy playing for a 0-0 or 1-1 tie. And then they're just biding their time and playing patiently until the top line comes back on. Whereas for Florida, every shift is a, is a, is a chance to, you know, push the pace of play, which, um, you know, sounds great in theory, but of course in practice, it does come with certain downsides, but certainly I think for Florida uh, so far, it's been more of a good thing than a bad thing. Yeah. And the results are hard to argue with. So in terms of, discussing their offensive zone offense strategy the neutral zone rush strategy 
and the defensive zone exit strategy, which do you want to start with? Which do you think is most integral to their game plan? I mean, it's, I don't actually think we even need to spend that much time on it because okay. for the most part, it's pretty standard stuff, the way okay. that they break out, the way they gain the line, but it's just, they're always looking for their Ds to join the play. So instead mm -hmm. of it being a three on three, now it's a four on three. Mm -hmm. And they, they have some guys who are really good off the rush. Like, um, you know, Brandon Montour might've been my biggest surprise last year because I scouted him back when he was in Anaheim this is four or five years ago. And I just thought like, he looked so out of place because he played on a team that didn't value that skill set necessarily. They were very conservative. And then he would be running around up ice and his teammates had a tough time reading off of him. And then the on ice results were pretty bad. Whereas, you know, same thing in Buffalo. And then finally, now he's in a place where his skill set is valued, but also he has teammates that's able to actually play with him. But, but then again, you know, you're, a player that, uh, you know, could cause a lot of headaches with his decision-making and, you know, sometimes his over-aggressiveness. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely what I thought that the Panthers were getting when they acquired Montour in the deadline. And, you know, going back to what you were talking about with, you know, picking up the players that fit into the system. And then what I was saying before about how the public domain uh, hockey discourse really is absent of any of this tactical discussion and like how, how puzzle pieces fit together. And it really altered my player evaluation, you know, uh, way of thinking, even though like, it doesn't really matter what I think, cause I'm just some guy, but you, you know, kind of like you, when they acquired Montour and, and especially Bennett, uh, listeners of this podcast will know well, but you don't, that I became a pariah to some of the other people that you know we try to engage with in this space because i was i was very much aggressively right. saying that this was a, a bad trade for sam bennett they overpaid i i might have said on the podcast that i didn't think that he was going to be in the nhl much longer and, and this idea of you know players are not are often not in the right place they need to be utilized in a specific way and what's happened with bennett montour to a lesser extent, Nudivara and Forsling, it has really influenced my thought process on that. Do you have a similar way of thinking about players now, before, et cetera? Well, well listen, like, let, let me make you feel a little bit better. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't high on the Bennett trade either because he, it just got to the point where he wasn't really doing much in Calgary. Like, he wasn't really trying to make plays and, I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes over there, but he, he just didn't look like a player that was a former, you know, third overall pick or whatever he was. Whereas um, I remember I first started watching uh, Florida's five, four power play last year. I'm like, Oh, like this guy on the left flank, like he's really good. And like, who is that guy? And I was shocked to realize that that was Sam Bennett because he was doing things with the puck. Where he was trying plays that I never saw in Calgary. So I, so I think he was a bit of a wild card and, and I guess it's a good thing he worked out, but you know, for, for whether it's Nudevara or Montour or Forsling to lesser degree, like I could see how they could have success. Whereas Bennett just came out of left field for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we can actually interpolate real quick here. Your uh, how to ruin a player line of thinking. If you want to explain that to the audience and I'll link it in the uh, episode description. Yeah, so so this is actually it was a relatively short post, but it remains the most uh, 
the most read uh, newsletter posts I've ever published on my Substack. And, and essentially, uh, like I come from a marketing background. I, I went to business school. And one of the things that we're taught is the something called the BCG matrix. Basically, it's just, uh, you know, you take a piece of paper, you draw two lines and you separate it into quadrants. And then it's like, it's a way for companies to identify like, what are the, your star products? What are your, what are your cash cows? What are your question marks? And then what are your like duds, right? But in terms of players, like the one principle that I think is fundamental to maximizing the talent that you have is you, you got to realize what they're good at, what they're bad at, what they like and what they don't like to do. And those could be different things. And the, the, the player development matrix that, that I use with, with my players, and that's it's really a very simple thing to grasp, is uh, as, a, as a hockey player, there are things on the ice that you do often, and then there are things on the ice that you do less often, okay? Easy. And then on the other hand, there are things that you do that have a high success rate, and then there are things that you do with a low success rate, which, once again, really easy. So when you put the, these two things together, you get four squares. So first of all is things that you do often that you have a high success rate. In. So this is like your bread and butter, right? If this is uh, Jonathan Huberto, that's playing off the rush and carrying the puck. If this is Patrick Hornquist is picking up rebounds out front or screening the goalie, right? Like fundamental things to your game. And the first job as a coach or as a player development coach or whatever, it's you got to be really good at identifying, okay, what's this player's core strength that they use all the time? Because if, if you ruin that, then the, then the player's ruined, right? So let's say for Sam Bennett, if he's a guy who actually likes to carry the puck off the rush and make plays into the middle and use the width of the ice, but in Calgary, they exclusively want him to dump and chase, well, you're off to a really bad start. And then the... So, so that's like, that's the first thing you got to look at. And then the second thing you look at is things that you do often that you have a low success rate in, because, you know, that shows a bit of a disconnect where let's say if you're asking a very small player to dump and chase and to recover the puck and he never gets the puck back, that could be an example of a high frequency, but low success rate action. And you, you can address it one of two ways. Either you help the player get better or you just tell them, okay, well, your job is not that anymore. And, and this is kind of like for, for Brandon Montour, what happened in his previous teams is he would, he would try to get up into the play or he would try to carry the puck. And then the success rate was really low because he wasn't getting a lot of help from his, from his teammates or his coaches weren't on board with it. So he was just kind of playing by himself. And then everybody else was on another program. So for him, like anything, in transition was kind of high volume, but, but low success. And now he's, that he's in Florida, um, now it's becoming a, a, a high frequency, high success action, which, you know, like he went from one of the worst possession Ds in the league to one of the best last year. And it was simply because he was in a context where all of a sudden what wasn't valued before now is, and his success rate went way up. And then then there are some things that you don't do so often that maybe you have a high success rate. So it's like something that you're good at that nobody knows that you're good at, even yourself. Um, you know, and, and, and this could be simply a factor of like not playing a lot of minutes. So like Carter Verhage went from being a bottom six forward with Tampa to being a top six forward in Florida. Right. So what used to be 
like low uh, frequency plays for him now is high frequency just because he's playing more with better teammates. So all of a sudden we're seeing how good Carver Hagee is. And then finally is, you know, there are things like low frequency, low success rate, which as a coach, you can, you can help a player get better at it, but it's not the best use of your time or their time. So mm-hmm. you might be just better off ignoring it. So basically like these are the four areas that were the four quadrants that you can analyze players. in. And I think it's a useful matrix to think about, and you can put in a lot of different things that players have issues with. And, you know, for example, like, let's say face-offs, which, you know, popular opinion amongst listeners of this podcast, I'm sure it's overrated in the public domain of hockey analysis, how important face-offs are. So, you know, you, you might have somebody whose opinion matters, perhaps it doesn't matter that would say something along the lines of, Oh, you know, Sam Bennett's not going to work as a center because he only wins 48% of face-offs. And that I think belongs in the, in the fourth category you were talking about where they're not successful at doing that, but it's a, it's a low event action, or at least like the, um, the difference between somebody that's bad at face-offs and good at face-offs is maybe 10 draw wins a year. So you can easily hide that because he does so many other things that hypothetically, he does so many other things that a center needs to be good at. Well, yeah. And, and and that's a great example. And that's precisely where analytics or, you know, tracking objective data comes in because, you know, I think for a long time, you know, Alex Barkov, let's say is like, you know, known as a really great defensive player and, you know, Selkie candidate. But actually, when you look at the numbers, his impact on offense is bigger than his impact on defense. Mm-hmm. You know, it all works out to him being a top line center, mm-hmm. but, but it's interesting how, you know, public perception and his actual impacts are different. So the only way to know what your high and low frequency actions are, what your high and low success rate actions are, is actually you, you got to watch the game with a, in a, with a certain viewpoint and then count things. So that's where the, the statistical analysis really comes in. And, and uh, that's something that we did a lot of in Toronto. And, and that even like now as a, as a private skills coach or a consultant, like that's, that's what I do a lot of. Mm-hmm. And that's why I find statistics like Corsi and expected goals so useful because they're easy to understand. You know, expected goals, if you really want to get into the machinations of what is a high XG play, a low XG play, beyond just what a layman would understand of, oh, you know, closer to the net on your forehand, that's going to be higher XG than a backhand from the blue line. Uh, You know, but like the exact algorithm, maybe you would take a while to completely understand it, but easy enough to understand in abstract. And then you can work backwards from uh, the data points that you have. Like, you know, Florida is a very high Corsi team. They're number one in score adjusted five on five Corsi this year. And you can work backwards from that to figure out what are the tactical strategies, what are the utilizations of their roster players that lead to this high possession, you know, metric. Yeah. And, and for, for them, the way to do it is simply to, you know, outspeed and then outman the other team in all three zones. Like that's the overarching philosophy. And to their credit, they're, they're able to bring in the people on the ice to support that vision. Mm-hmm. 
I want to talk about the two, three, the offensive zone strategy that you pointed to. Perhaps they don't use it as much as some of the other teams that you've uh, written about in the past, but I, I found it to be a fascinating concept, especially as a soccer fan, bringing in the uh, comparison to Pep's Barcelona, you know, the counterintuitive style of overloading a defensive area to create offensive opportunities. Do you want to explain it a little bit more for the listeners? Yeah. So one thing that you see Florida do, especially off face-offs, like that's something that they do almost systematically on ozone face-offs is they'll have two forwards low. So the center and a winger, and then they'll have, they'll look to get the third center up high closer to the D's. And, and as you, as you explained really elegantly, it's you're overloading a defensive area, which is the area farther away from the net. Um, and then you're creating speed off the puck down into the offensive area. So it's counterintuitive, but then it makes perfect sense once you think about it, because um, most defensive schemes in the NHL, they, they're designed to protect the slot and they're designed to protect the net. So, but, but the difficulty with that is you can't effectively defend against a player who's not even there yet. Mm-hmm. So what happens is instead of, instead of defending, let's say in a three, two, which is three, four is low and two defensemen high, your checks are right in front of you. So all you got to do is stand next to them. But in a two, three, which is when you send a third forward high, and then he's coming down, you can't defend a player effectively if he's got more speed coming downhill. on you. Mm-hmm. And that's the overall philosophy of Florida, whether it's like, you're almost like, creating this these mini end zone rushes mm-hmm. like that's the idea because you know florida is a team that plays best when they're on the move so mm-hmm. actually you've taken a very static situation which is ozone play and you've made it more dynamic by creating kind of the, like this this bit of movement inside the zone so so that's the idea mm-hmm. i thought of uh in basketball the concept of pace and space as well which it's complicated by the fact that a lot of the times pace and space means transition three pointers and there's no added benefit of shooting further away in hockey. It's all one goal, whether it's from five feet or 50 feet. Uh, but I, I do think it's a, it's a similar concept and uh, something that you can point to in a, in a different sport. Yeah. So you, you said uh, you want to talk about the power play because the power mm-hmm. play isn't doing so hot this year. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, Fascinating because of how much they generate offense five on five, but they have such a middling power play. It's actually overachieving its expected goals right now, which if you looked at just the raw goal totals, it would be a middling, maybe even above average power play. But, you know, it's easy to notice even for people that aren't necessarily as uh, up to date on their, you know, advanced metrics that it's, it's struggling by the eye test. So what do you see when the power play is out there right now with the Panthers? So the big difference between this year and last year is Aaron Ekblad. Right? Mm-hmm. So the, the thing with Ekblad is actually, even though he's kind of like their number one defense or cornerstone player, is that he actually doesn't fit the, the new mantra of the Panthers all that well. Because um, I actually had a chance to spend about a week with Aaron Ekblad at one of Daryl Belfry's uh, Florida camps. Wow. So this, this was in the summer of 2019. And we had guys like Roman Yossi, Charlie McAvoy, Keith Yandel, who, who you know you would mm-hmm. know well from his Florida days. Uh, Mike Matheson was there actually. They were both uh, with Florida back then. Um, and then um, I think Matt Grizzlick was supposed to go, but he canceled last minute because of something came up. 
and, and Ekblad was there. So Florida was by far the most represented team on D and it just, it, the thing that really uh, jumped out at me about Ekblad is like, he's such a toolsy player. Like he was, he was one of the best skaters in a straight line. One of the biggest guys, really strong, really good shot, accurate passer. But it, like in terms of actually creating plays, when there's not a lot of time and space, like he didn't have that creative, uh, that inspiration that maybe a Yossi had or even a McAvoy. And, you know, his game was more like winning one-on-one battles, out-muscling people, uh, getting shots like on net and through the goalie. Like that was more of his game. Like it's more, I would say, you know, meat and potatoes. Mm -hmm. So like like one player that he reminds me of is uh, Shea Weber very similar kind of players who would kind of overpower you one-on-one had that bullet shot, but offensively wasn't really going to take you out of your seat necessarily. And maybe didn't look for the kind of players that other players look for. So last year when Eggblad went down with that injury, like uh, Florida went to a five forwards power play. And once again, they use a lot of movement to create these mini end zone rushes. They try to like attack downhill, find these little two on ones and, Basically, the plan was to have a mix of like Verhage, Bennett, um, Barkov, and Huberto like working up high and then rolling down, and then they would have Hornquist at the net. Like Hornquist was a net guy, and but then everybody else was able to kind of read off each other and improvise. Whereas this year, I think with Eggblad back, they they're kind of going back to that kind of tried and true like the one three one setup. And Eggblad's a guy who likes to shoot the puck. He's not the best passer. He's not the best creator. So he's going to shoot the puck. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked at the heat maps on hockey viz and basically the bulk of the volume is coming from Ekblad's area. Like, do you see him taking a lot of shots from his spot? His spot. If it, if it's the, if this, the left circle where he was able to score a lot of power play goals last year, not as much in the center of the ice. That's something that they're trying to work towards. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So you, like, I think that the dynamic, I really liked the dynamic last year with a lot of movement and all five forwards who can kind of interchange. And whereas it just seemed like with Eggblad, they're, they're just way less dynamic. And that's the trouble where like having your, the best five players versus the, the right five players is not always the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that last year, that was definitely something that was going on in the power play, even before they went to five forwards. Because Keith Yandel, who you mentioned earlier, at, at being at the camp with Ekblad, is the kind of player that makes no sense for the Panthers five on five because he can't skate. He's not positionally aware, at least at the level of some of the other guys on the Panthers, like Mackenzie Week or like an Aaron Ekblad. But on the power play, he's very creative, yeah. like a Roman Yossi, the example that you brought up. And he's somebody that was able to create plays, create those mini rushes and two V ones, three V two opportunities because he had the vision because he had the creativity and because he could keep his feet moving in a way that Ekblad can't. Yeah. So it's like, we'll see how, how it all shakes out. Um, But yeah, it's like Montreal had this problem with Weber. Like the Mm -hmm. the power play was always pretty mediocre when, when they were trying to set up Weber for his shot, just because it took away from so many of the other options. So, so I don't know how it's all going to work out. Like 
to be honest, like I wasn't super high on, on Ekblad early in his career, just because like he came in with like, like he was an early developing player, very physically mature. And like, I kind of questioned how much, how high his ceiling was, but now like at five on five, he's, he's turned into a really quite a good defenseman at five on five, but maybe the power play is kind of like that next hurdle for him. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually love the Weber comparison. And I think one of the reasons that that Montreal power play struggled similar to the Florida struggles today, and you only have to go back to last year to see a, a counter example is that that shot that they were setting up for Weber, there wasn't really a lot of puck movement, or at least like Weber was up so high that the goalie wasn't moving. And, you know, they weren't able to get that goalie movement. Whereas, you know, when Ekblad was in the left-hand circle, kind of like in his OV office or the version of it, you know, Yandel's on the other side of the ice or Huberto's on the other side of the ice, Barca, et cetera, feeding him the puck. He's got a one-timer with half the net to shoot at if he gets the shot off clean enough. Okay, so so here's a bit of a counterintuitive uh, scenario here. So now imagine if uh, the Panthers went back to last year's power play, which is uh, – basically having uh, Verhege, Bennett, Barkov, and Huberto work up high. But instead of instead of um, Hornquist at the net, you have Ekblad at the net. Because Ekblad is actually, he, he's really comfortable in front of the net from a, de- from a defensive perspective, but he's a big guy, you know, very tough to move, very strong one-on-one, very good on puck retrievals. Um, and you did it that way. So you had the forwards playing with the puck high, working downhill, Ekblad is either screwing the goalie or kind of creating chaos or retrieving pucks down low. But then that's the first look. Then the second look is the forward come downhill once Ekblad pops out and then you can hit him for a one time. So he starts at the net and he moves up. Whereas the forwards start um, at the blue line and move down. So, so that's maybe something quite unique that Florida is in a position to try out. And then uh, the the other advantage with that is because Ekblad is starting from the net, he's going to be skating forward. And if there's a turnover, he's actually going to be back defending. Like he might be the first person back to defend because everybody's moving, you know, not in the same direction, but they're consistently moving toward one direction, which is Ekblad works from the, the opposing net toward his own net. And then everybody else works from, you know, the blue line down. So something we're trying. In general, there's been just way too much static positioning on that power play. There should be more rotation. And like you said, Ekblad is definitely very comfortable below the dots. And he's got a unique skill set for a defender, maybe not at the level of a Yossi or even a Yandel, but it's a unique skill set for sure. And, you know, just in general, like the position that they're putting him in on the power play and really not ever moving him out of is not optimal in general. Yeah. At least in my opinion. And, yeah, and um, I think Chara played net front in Boston kind of in, in that team's peak years. So it's not unheard of. So something we're trying. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, Andrew Burnett, if you're listening, worth a shot. I, I don't see why it wouldn't be worth trying because right now the Panthers power play can't really get anything going. Uh, fortunately enough, the five-on-five scoring is carrying the load. Uh, so before I let you go, I did want to talk about somebody that you've interacted with that's now a member of the Panthers organization, and that is Mason Marchment. So just take this wherever you want to go with it. What was your experience like with Mason Marchment? Yeah, so um, uh, my, 
but Mason, um, so he, he was there the whole time I was there essentially uh, until, until the last, but I actually, I was on the coaching staff in, uh, with Harley's in 2019, 20. Um, and so I got to see him pretty much every day that year, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he would kind of get called up to at least once in a while. But uh, ironically enough, now um, in, in my work with uh, PHF, I, I work with uh, his cousin, Kennedy Marshman, who, who's a super, super uh, scorer at uh, in, in, in women's hockey. So um, anyway, so, so the thing with Mason was uh, he was identified by, by Kyle Dubas and you know, his scouts uh, as an undrafted OHL player. And basically he was a big guy, uh, really feisty, really good shot his skating was an absolute mess and it wasn't like even a technical thing. Like physically he was, he was built a little bit weird. Like if you, <laughs> if you look at a lot of, if you look at a lot of good skaters, they're bow-legged, which means that their, their knees are wider than their ankles, right? Like it's um, you can, in the most extreme cases, like you can tell somebody to put their feet together and then, then you can throw like a football between your knees. So, <laughs> so that's what being bow-legged is like, a lot of cowboys are bow-legged because like they spend a lot of time riding on a horse and like their legs basically curve around the horse's torso. And the opposite of that, which is your knees are close together and your, your ankles are far apart. That that's being knock kneed. And a lot of actually female athletes have that just because they have wider hips. So the, the hips are wide, the knees are narrow, and then the, the feet flare out. So Mason is actually one of the rare, I would say, high level players who's a knock need skater and it took years and years of effort from him and from you know our development staff to get him to a position where he can turn and skate and take contact and do all that without getting hurt so the the, the big struggle with him was like he would either we we either have to we have to shut him down because he would he would keep getting injured like it was difficult for him to to get on the ice and play consistently for the Marlies. But when he, he did, he was always very effective. Did you see him becoming the effective NHL player that he is today? Or is that to you kind of a uh, statistical anomaly? No. So for, from a result point of view, like he always drove play really well with the Marlies. He scored okay. But I, I just thought like there's no way that a guy who looks like this play, right? And so good that he he was gonna make it for sure. Like when when the Leafs traded um, traded him for Dennis Mulgan, like I remember a lot of people were really happy because Mulgan was a player that some of our scouts were very high on, even dating back to his like junior days. Um you know, player who's very creative offensively, really good mover. And like Marchment was never going to be that. So the, the thought process is like, if we're taking one of our tweener kind of NHL, AHL guys and flipping him for a guy who played middle six minutes for the Panthers, like that was going to be a win, right? That was going to be a clear win for us. And ultimately it didn't work out that way. <laughs> so, yeah. It is kind of a marvel that somebody who was such a poor skater, technically and physically, uh, became an integral part of maybe not integral, but a successful part of the Florida Panthers lineup. And uh, sometimes that's just hard work and uh, hockey IQ will get you because uh friend of the show, Reese Jessup, who's now a uh, scout for the Carolina hurricanes. He, he would uh, love to describe Mason Marchment as a, a good player 
in the body of a bad player. And I think that that's a really, really good way to think about uh, Mason Marchman's skill level. Yeah, and and what I would say is is like he's maybe the exception to the rule because generally speaking, players who move like that they don't tend to stick in the NHL. But certainly, I think it it, it speaks to his, you know, the way that he plays the game. His like because he he's the pain in the ass to play against. Like <laughs> yeah, he'll he'll get under under your skin. He'll hit. He'll fight. Um, he'll score and then he'll chirp you. Like, like he's uh, aside from the legs, like he's got every other aspect to like, uh, to, to be a good NHL player. So um, ultimately like, like we'll see, you know, how many games uh, he gets in and how effective he is in those games. But, but I'm like, I, I just feel really happy that, that he's able to, uh, to play at this level. Mm-hmm. I think he might get some of that feistiness from his dad. That, that might be something that helped him become that kind of player, maybe. Yeah, but actually, funny enough, met his Marshman, and his dad had, like, kind of, like, the typical hockey body, which is, like, he's short, but, like, really uh, stocky and uh, pretty bow-legged. So maybe, like, Mason gets his height and, like, that, the, the body shape from, from, from the mom's side of the family, something. But, but it was funny, certainly. Yeah, that, that is an interesting gene pool for sure with uh, his sister being such a professional or a successful PHF player. And uh, yeah, I think that, cousin. Yeah. I think that the, uh, the Panthers and the whale have some sort of affiliation together. I, I've definitely seen some uh, social media support. So uh, having two marchments uh, with that affiliation too, it, it, it's pretty unique. So before I let you yeah. go, Jack, um, is there anything that you think is interesting or worth uh, mentioning about the Panthers tactically that we haven't covered yet? So I wrote about this recently and, and I actually, um, I talked to a player who, who, who plays in the Panthers organization and, and we talked about their D zone coverage because mm-hmm. it's unusual because um, NHL teams play a mix of zone and man to man and the Panthers might be one of the rare teams that play a zone uh, in the entire defensive zone. So when the puck is low, which means when the puck is below the, the faceoff dot, they're looking to outnumber the puck five on three, like in, in a small quadrant of the ice. But then when the puck comes back high, they're still looking to play a zone defense. And the way that this player described it to me is like, they're playing PK, but at five on five. So as as you can imagine, it looks weird at times. There's maybe some unnecessary running around, but there's also some benefits. And uh, it, it's just a different thing. Like, the, you know, the, the Panthers, I don't think their their system revolves on that. They can play man-on-man and have a very similar degree of success. But it's just one of those funny little, interesting little quirks that the team has and that not many teams uh, in the league copy. Mm-hmm. In a sport like hockey, obviously the defensive system has to feed into the offensive system or neutral zone system in some way. Do you think that helps them generate transition offense playing the zone defense? Um, I, I mean, it depends on how they see it, but you know, plenty of teams play man on man and then are able to transition quickly. Like Tampa mm-hmm. plays kind of more of a man on man up high and Toronto plays more of a man on man. And so it's not mandatory. It's just, it's just one of those things. It's like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you got to have a D zone coverage and, you know, there are pros and cons to each and what they have just happens to be different. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I was definitely intrigued by seeing that you pointed their defensive zone coverage system out as kind of being an outlier, not necessarily in terms of the results, good or bad, but just the, the structure of it when so many teams in the league play the same way. And there doesn't seem to be any clear rationale either. It's just kind of one of those interesting things that happens. And, you know, hockey's a really random sport. Just look at goaltending results. You know, you don't need to look very much further than that to give you the impression that sometimes hockey stuff can't really be explained. So that's just another one of those things, I guess. Yeah. Well, the rationale is I think Quenville played a zone defense when he was in Chicago. So that was just something that he carried with him. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's generally the rationale in hockey. It's if it's, if it's been done before and it works, then we're going to stick with it until something changes. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's often how it goes in uh, the NHL for sure. So uh, you've been really, really gracious with your time, but I do want to make sure that you can uh, get out of here before I talk your ear off. So before you go, why don't you tell all of our listeners where they can find your work, just uh, whatever it is, writing, video, et cetera. So the best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. And then once you find me on Twitter, you can look at my tweets about, you know, NHL tactics or player development. You can sign up for my free newsletter. Uh, it's jhanhky.substack.com. Uh, there is also a paid variant. If you're a high level player coach, uh, maybe if you work for an NHL team uh, for $20 a month, you get uh, exclusive video breakdowns from me. Um, so if, if you work in high level hockey, that's going to pay for itself in no time. So maybe do check that out. And then if you're looking for a different way to uh, understand the game of hockey, I sell eBooks uh, and that's um, hockey tactics, 2021. That's the most recent one uh, breaks down uh, actually the Tampa Bay lightning power play. What makes it so deadly and what made it so deadly against the Florida Panthers last playoffs. Mm -hmm. Had to bring that up, huh? <laughs> yeah i mean it would be good to know how to stop it i suppose yes well the way to stop it is to make sure they don't play kucherov that, <laughs> that's a full that's a foolproof way to stop mission accomplished oh anyway jack thank you so much for coming on uh i will definitely link to the ebooks and to your uh, twitter in the uh, episode description so everybody make sure to check those out jack thanks again for being so gracious with your time well, thank you. It was good to talk Panthers, which I don't get to do a lot of. <laughs> I'm, I'm not shocked to hear that, but it, it's always good to talk Panthers. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.